And we'll be reading this text a little bit at a time, rather than reading it all up front, as we generally do. There's 24 verses here. There's quite a bit. Um, so um, we're going to just take it a little bit at a time. And the story will be building as we go. And I've got in your notes this morning a few points uh, just to keep us on track of where we are. Let's begin by reading first two verses. Let's look at it. So this is Isaiah 29. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there will be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Okay. If you're like me, I read these first two verses, and I shrug my shoulders and say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and keep reading until something of significance comes out, because I don't know what that means. <laughs> There's probably, if I were to guess, unless you've studied this passage, maybe one person in this room who knows what this word Ariel might mean. Um, I want to take you, I'm, I'm just going to read it for you, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 15. I'm just going to read this verse, and I think it's going to help in our understanding of this word Ariel. And if Jane and Lena were in here, they would be thinking something different when I say Ariel, if you know what I mean. Uh, Ezekiel 43, 15. It says, The altar hearth, four cubits, and the altar hearth projecting upwards, four horns. That's the whole verse. You might say, what does that have to do with anything? has everything to do with everything, in fact. I want to show you a picture. This is Solomon's temple. This would have been the temple at the time. Of course, an artist's rendering, right? And it's kind of uh, dissected a little bit to where we can see inside the temple. And I know you can't see very many details. That's okay. It's not the point. But here we see the temple. And on the outside, does that go to that next one? Look where this square is here. See that right there on the outside? <laughs> Okay, this would have been the altar, and on that altar, you see up on a stone platform, uh, there is an altar of bronze, and you see there's a little tiny man up there, and there's a fire burning. Well, on top of this altar of bronze, there is, if you think about your grill at home, there are grates running this way, and that's where you lay the meat to be burned, right? Okay, the place where you lay the meat to be burned is the word Ariel here, and it has just been transliterated. I'm sure that's not how you say it in Hebrew, but that's how we have it in English, and it's transliterated. What it means is the very place where the meat is laid to be burned on the altar. Okay, so when we go back to Isaiah chapter 29, and we read, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there will be mourning, moaning and lamentation. She shall be to me like an Ariel, okay? She shall be like uh, to me like the place where sacrifice is burned. Here's what he's saying. Jerusalem, the very city, city where David encamped, will be to me like the place where, I light, where sacrifices are lit on fire. Why is God calling Jerusalem this altar hearth? Let's keep going. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And I will encamp against you all around you, and I will besiege you with towers. I will raise siege works against you. You will be brought low, and the earth, uh, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come to the ground like, like the, voice, the voice of a ghost. 
and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, with earthquake, great noise, with a whirlwind, tempest, with a flame of devouring fire. I don't know why I'm stumbling over my words so much this morning. Maybe I need a drink of water. Excuse me. Okay, so here's what he's saying. God is going to visit Jerusalem with devouring fire. Did you see that in verse 6? Okay, so here's the imagery that he's giving. He says, ah, Ariel, Ariel. He's saying, ah, okay, city. Now, we know this because we've been studying Isaiah since the very beginning. Does God have a good outlook on the, on the city of Jerusalem right now? No, but all of this is leading towards a faithless, evil people. And what he is saying now in this is, okay, let's think of it this way. Because you have been who you've been, you've not been faithful to me, you are going to be to me, this city is going to be like an altar hearth, the place where you lay a sacrifice. All right, And I am going to visit you with a devouring fire. Okay, So if Jerusalem, the city, is the great where the sacrifice is laid, and God is going to consume it, what do you think is going to be laid on that altar to be burned? The people the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not a very good picture so far, right? <laughs> Maybe it gets a little bit brighter as we read, and, and, and it does actually, thankfully. Okay, here's the, some of the things that God said he's going to do. He said, if you skim it with your eyes, you'll see, he says, I'm going to encamp against you. I'm going to besiege you with towers. I'm going to raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low. And your speech will be brought low. If that's in verse 4. And then it gives this reference of small dust and passing chaff. And he says, as will be the people who encamp against you. So we remember that the Assyrians were the main threat at the time. This threat will pass. But a greater threat is coming. The Babylonians. And those Babylonians will come against them at a time when they're not expecting it, and they will come quickly. It's, have you ever been outside? I'm sure you have. You've been outside, and a gust of wind blows, and it blows some dust in your eyes? Has that ever happened to you? If it, happen, if it, happens, if it hasn't, that's strange, because it's happened to me a lot. Um, but a wind will pick up some dust. It'll blow it in your face. You'll have to blink, get it out of your eyes. But how quickly does it come? instantaneously. Did you see it coming? Well, no, you didn't. Otherwise, you would have guarded yourself against it. As will be the enemies of Jerusalem when they come. Like passing chaff and like a dust that blows in the wind, it'll be picked up, it'll be swept in your eyes, and you won't even know that it's coming. And it'll cause you harm. And who's going to do it? Well, the Lord. The Lord is the one visiting the city with a dev devouring fire. The Lord is going to be the one to do it. It says in verse 6, look at it again, just verse 6, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts. Again, reflect back on Isaiah chapter 10, where he's talking about the enemy army is the staff or the rod in his hand. So even though the enemy army is the one hitting them, right, battling them, who is really doing it? It's the Lord. He's the one that sent them. Okay, so it says the Lord is going to visit you with thunder, earthquake, 
great noise, whirlwind, and tempest, and the flame of a devouring or consuming fire. Now, we've heard that phrase, consuming fire, before, haven't we? That's a, that's a familiar phrase. For our God is a consuming fire. We know that. Let's talk just a little bit about fire from the Lord. There was fire from the Lord during the dedication of the priests in the tabernacle. Leviticus 9.24 says, Fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed the burnt offering. That word for consume is the same word we have here for devouring fire. A fire came out as they placed their burnt offering, as they were dedicating the priest, and the Lord sent fire, and it consumed. Another way that's translated is actually eaten. It's, that's why we say, I consumed food. It, it's, it's, it's taken completely. So the Lord consumes it. And how does he consume it? With his mouth? Well, he consumes it with fire. So the Lord comes and he, he puts fire on it and he consumes it. It says, he consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When the people saw it, they all shouted and fell on their faces. Why do you think when people saw a fire come from the Lord and consume an offering that they fell on their face? Because have you ever seen that happen before? That would be a pretty terrifying sight to see a, a large animal laid, and it's, it's already on fire, actually, but the Lord comes and he finishes it off. They let, they let it on fire. The offering is burning, and the Lord comes and he consumes it. He takes it, and he, and he, he accepts it. That would be a terrifying thing to see. But it happens again during the dedication of Solomon's temple, the temple that we just looked at. When, when Solomon is there and he's dedicating the temple, here's what happens, Second Chronicles 7.1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we see God doing this in special occasions, but God did this in a couple of other ways as well. But I want to read Hebrews 12, 28, and 29, because this is the verse, you're, without me even reading it, this is the verse that you've been thinking about the whole time, so I'm going to read it we'll talk about it. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? I want to read a couple of song lyrics for you. These aren't, these aren't uh, uh, secular songs. These are so-called worship songs. Here's what they say. I have three, three different songs. They're very short. Three different songs. This first one says, Fire fall down, fire fall down, on us we pray. Fire fall down. That is repeated 16 times in this particular song. That's a song by Jesus Culture. Here's another one. Breathe on us, holy fire fall. Like a rushing wind, send your spirit here. That's a Carrie Job song. If you don't know who these people are, good. Good for you. Not in a, <laughs> I don't mean, oh, good for you. I mean, I mean, really good for you, if you don't know who they are. Oh, Holy Spirit, burn like a fire, consuming, consume me. Here in your presence, consume me. That's a song by Hillsong. Let me tell you something. It is not a good thing to call down fire from heaven to consume you. But yet, in Pentecostal circles, and as it's, creeping into evangelical circles, this terminology, this phraseology of saying, Lord, send your fire, that is an unbelievable thing to ask for. Luke 9, 52 through 54. 
Here's the only circumstance I could find where the disciples said, bring down fire. And let's see if it was a good thing or a bad thing. He sent messengers ahead of him, and he went and he entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare, make preparations for him. But they didn't receive him. That is, they didn't receive Jesus because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Positive thing or negative thing? <laughs> I believe that would be a negative thing, right? Think Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained down fire and consumed a city and all the people in it, and all the animals in it, all the women and children in it. Okay, let's read. I just got two more references here. Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The fury of God's fire consumes who? His adversaries, not his friends, of who we are if we are in Jesus Christ. Last one I'll reference, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, picking up in the second half of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from his presence and the glory of his might. To call down fire from heaven and to sing, imagine singing, O Holy Spirit, burn like a fire, all-consuming, and consume me. Here, in your presence, send down fire from heaven to consume me. Why would you sing that when the fire is reserved for his adversaries and his wrath? I say that to warn us this morning because you might go home and listen to Pandora Station or something and, and uh, Hillsong comes on and before you know it, you hear yourself humming and singing, Lord, let your fire fall on me. Lord, send your spirit and consume me. You realize what you're asking him to do? Quote here from John MacArthur, Don't be consumed in God's fierce, unrelenting fire of judgment, because in fact, that's what it is. I say this by way of summary this morning. Either God will consume the sacrifice or he will consume you. Either God will consume the sacrifice or he will consume you. Which would you rather? The story doesn't end here, though. Let's continue reading verse 7. Okay, so the summary of that is that the people will be visited by the Lord in a flame of consuming fire. We got that so far. Right, Jerusalem is, is kind of the, the altar, and the people are going to be placed on the altar, and God is going to come and send a fire to consume them. Okay? Here's what happens next. Sounds pretty gloomy. And again, the fire from God is a negative thing, not a positive thing. You don't want it. You don't want the fire. Don't call it down. Uh, that's a pretty big temptation, right? Tempting the Lord. Those songs are actually ironic then, aren't they? Okay, look at verse 7. It says, The multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and her distress, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, behold, he is eating and he awakes, and his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and he 
awakes faint and his thirst is not quenched, so a multitude of all the nations that shall fight against Mount Zion. Continue on. Well, let's stop right there. Let me explain that before we go on. Okay, so I just read for you what happened during the dedication of the priest at the tabernacle. Do you remember the verses that immediately follow that dedication when the Lord sent fire to consume the burnt offering during that dedication? The very next verses are the story um, that you will know. It's about Nadab and Abihu. You remember these guys? It's just two verses, so I'm going to read it for you. It says, this is Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and they offered unauthorized or could be translated strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And so fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died. Why did fire proceed from the Lord and consume it? Because the Lord accepted the sacrifice and consumed it instead of the people. Okay, when the Lord did not accept a sacrifice, it consumed the people instead of the sacrifice. Okay, so again, the Lord will either consume a sacrifice or he will consume you with his wrath. And it says, all of this, all this whole circumstance will be like a dream to you. Have you ever woken up from a dream and you thought that that dream really happened? And it takes you a minute to come to your senses. And in this circumstance, he says, okay, it's going to be like a dream. Imagine a hungry man. You're, 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 you're asleep and you're hungry. That happens to me pretty often, actually. You're asleep and you're hungry, and he, he dreams that he's eating. Maybe a large feet, whatever his favorite food is. He's eating it, he's stuffing his face. And in his dream, he's full and satisfied, but then he wakes up, and what do you know? He's still hungry. And then he continues on. He says, or it's like a thirsty man. Um, he's, he's drinking in his dream, but he wakes up, and behold, his, his thirst is not satisfied. And so he remains. And then he says, so shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. And he's going to continue on in verse 9 to give us more context, but what he's saying is, the Lord is pouring, as it says in verse 10 actually, the Lord is pouring out on them deep sleep so that when these events are happening to them, they're not recognizing them for what they really are, but instead it's like a dream. It's like a dream to them. You ever been in a circumstance where it feels that this can't be real? Well, this cannot be really happening. Or have you ever been in a circumstance and something happened, but you didn't recognize it for what it was? You didn't even, actually, I didn't even think twice about it. Something happened, but I don't know, I didn't pay any attention to it. But what happened was very significant. I don't know, imagine back, remember we had the lunar eclipse not too long ago? Were you able to go outside and watch that? Um, I was, and let me tell you what happened in my experience. Amanda's parents came from Knoxville. You know, because we were right in that, you know, we, we fell right in that line of vision of where, where it was actually going to take place, and Amanda's parents came. And so we had the whole day kind of lined out, and this was when I was working full-time. And so I had planned to take my break right during that time, because you remember I worked from home. So I, I had my break all planned out, right? I even requested a long break, and, and it got extended by just a couple of minutes. Anyway, um, I, 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 I had this break. And we planned it. The girls were outside, Amanda and her parents, and we're all ready. And here was uh, the moon. Sun was coming. And as it got about here, clouds came over the entire sky. 
and it passed, and then it went by, and wouldn't you know it, as soon as it was done, clouds came, it was a clear day again. Uh, it just happened at that right moment where we didn't recognize it, but can you imagine being somewhere and not realizing that there was a, uh, an eclipse happening, and all of a sudden it got dark, and then it got light again? Or can you even imagine more significantly that during that whole time you had your eyes closed and you never knew that it happened? This is what's happening for the people of Israel. Great events are happening around them, but they don't recognize them because a deep sleep has been given to them by the Lord, that they can't even recognize significant events that are happening around them. Okay, look, look down, uh, let's look at verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out a, deep, a spirit of deep sleep, and he's closed your eyes. That is in reference to the prophets. And he has covered your heads. That is in reference to the seers. Okay. Have you ever woken up from a deep sleep and you were not with it and you tried to do something and you couldn't do it? Uh, this, again, happens to me pretty often. I will, if Amanda ever wakes me up in the middle of the night, I am useless. I think that the house is on fire when it's something small. I don't, I don't know what I think is happening. My mind is not with it. Not only is my mind not with it, my body is not with it. Do you know there's something that, that our, our body kind of goes into a, a type of paralysis when we sleep? So sometimes if you're woken up in an instant, your body actually, if it's not processing things right, may still be in a state of paralysis. Um, but, what does that happen to you? Oh. And so your body and your mind might not be with it when you get up. And sometimes I've woken up and I get out of the bed right away and I do kind of stagger a little bit. Has that ever happened? Because things have not settled in yet. This is what's being referenced. He says, a deep sleep has overtaken you. And so be blind and stagger, but not with wine and be drunk. But you're not drunk with wine or strong drink here. You're drunk in the spirit of your mind, your eyes and your ears. You can't hear the word of the Lord. You can't see the events happening, take, taking place right in front of your eyes. Why? Because the Lord has made it a deep sleep fall on you, and you're staggering and stumbling around, and you're blind, and you can't hear. You're in that state where I can't wake up, and I can't recognize anything happening around me. This is the state of the people. Can you imagine? Now, we know that this is figurative language, helping us to understand through pictures and through stories and symbolism what the state of the people is. The people are in a spiritual state of not being with it completely. They don't know what the Lord is saying. They can't hear Him. They can't see Him. They can't even see events for what they really are. That's the state of the people. Okay? Continue on. Verse 11. And the, vi and, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that are sealed. When the men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And then they give the book to one who cannot read, and they say, read this, and he says, I can't read. Verse 13, but the Lord says, because this people draw near with their mouth, let's stop right there, actually. Let me, let me, let me, let me talk about verses 11 and 12. That's, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it, I think? that He says, this vision, this vision, the, the, the very thing that Isaiah is saying to you right now, the words that are being spoken to you in this moment, here's what they're like. It's like a book that's sealed. You say, okay, I have this book from the Lord. And you, you say, well, I can't read it because it's sealed. And so you give it to someone else. And they say, will you read that for me? And he says, well, I can't. It's sealed. It's not mine to open. 
says, okay, understood. Uh, evidently, he takes it to someone else. He says, okay, someone else couldn't read this. Will you, will you read it? And he's like, okay. He breaks the seal, and he opens it. He says, oh, wait, I don't know how to read. He said, well, I need someone to, I can't understand it. Someone help me to understand. But the prophets can't see the Lord. The seers can't hear from God. There is no one to help. No one can understand the word from the Lord. What a sad place to be, right? But it's still hard to have sympathy on them, isn't it? Because let's read next, verses 13 and 14. The Lord said, here's, here's the heart of the issue, okay? This is why all this is happening to them. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, so... I have there as a summary of what's happening here. The people will be consumed because they do not understand and their worship is false. And we can actually relate to that boiled down to its simplest form, can't we? Do you understand the word of the Lord perfectly? Do you? No? Okay. What about your worship? Is it always genuine, heartfelt worship to the Lord? No? Okay, well, I guess it's not. So I guess we're kind of like them, aren't we? I guess maybe we deserve, too, to be placed on the altar and consumed by the Lord, if that's what it all boils down to. Here's what he says. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I've been saying over and over again, Worship is a matter of the heart, but it's not only a matter of the heart, because a lot of things are a matter of the heart, aren't they? That's about the way you feel, right? I can love a lot of things. I can do a lot of things from my heart, but it doesn't mean they're going to be right, right? But, oh, I had, that was, that was wrong. I can take a math test today, and out of, out of the pure intentions of my heart, I will answer every question on that math test. But no matter how sincere my heart was, I'm going to get a majority wrong because I'm very poor at math. So how far does sincerity of heart take you? But instead, worship needs to be, and this is in your notes because I want us to walk away remembering this, is that worship is an informed matter of the heart. Worship is an informed matter of the heart. not a blind matter of the heart. It's not a passion passioned matter of the heart. It's, it's not something that you do just however you want to do it, but it's informed. And then it is a matter of the heart as well. It is not just informed intentions. No, that's not what it is because he, he condemns them that they only fear the Lord because it was written as a command. You should fear the Lord. Okay, I fear the Lord. Check. Is, is that what he means by fear the Lord? But there should be an actual fear. You can tell me to fear something. I say, okay, I'll fear that, but I, don't, but I don't really. Okay, so then what matters more, actually fearing something and saying it or not saying it but actually fearing it? You see, the words are, are minimal in that situation, but the true intentions are what matter. And he tells us that the heart is 
the problem. Because these people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Don't we see that all of this boils down to a matter of the heart? It's the matter of the heart. Your heart is the problem. That's for us today. Don't you know your heart is the problem? You can draw near to God by saying, I love God, I love Jesus, I love everything Christian, whatever it is. I love coming to church, I love giving money, I love reading my Bible. I, I, I will give every praise with my lips that I possibly can. But what about your heart? You can honor God with your lips all day long, but if it's not attached to the sincere intentions of the heart, then it's meaningless. That's not what God wants from you. If you think what God wants is for you to come and give him something that's not sincere, then you don't understand who your God is. Your God knows the very intentions of your heart. You can't hide it from him. You can't go to church and sing the songs but not really be engaged and mean them and think that you've offered God praise. That's not it. You can lift your hands and be passionate all day long. You can sway with it doesn't matter unless your heart is the thing that's engaged in worship rightly. You can passionately say, Lord, let your fire fall. Let your fire fall on me. Consume me in this place. What a foolish thing to say. Your heart is not informed on how God ought to be worshipped. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship because our God is a consuming fire. It's a matter of the heart. Honoring God with your lips, not a bad thing, right? Let's honor God with our lips. Let's do that. The fear of God, good thing. Let's fear God. We should. But if those things only proceed from your lips, there's a problem. Your lips ought to speak out of an overflow of your heart. Verse 13. It says, their hearts are far from me. The fear of God is a commandment taught by men. So it's a description of the people during Isaiah's time, but it is later fulfilled during the time of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus quoting this verse? In reference to the scribes and Pharisees? Verse 14, likewise, was written during Isaiah's time fulfilled at another time during the time of Jesus and in fact still being fulfilled today. I just want to reference one thing. We're going to move on to the next thing. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. I just want to read this for you. Let's just read it in context of what we're hearing. So the people don't understand. They don't have wisdom. They don't have discernment. Look back at verse 14. The wisdom of the wise will perish the discernment of the discerning will be hidden. When is that going to happen? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning I will discern and I will thwart. That's a, that's a quote here, even though it's worded a little differently. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not 
know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the, through the folly of what, of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, folly of the Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So where is wisdom? When was the wisdom of man taken and humbled? In Jesus Christ himself. This is when the wisdom of man, even though the wisdom of the people of Jerusalem was humbled when they were destroyed by the Babylonians, right? That's a humbling experience to have your temple taken away and destroyed, burned to the ground. That's humbling. So yes, it was fulfilled then, but more significantly, the wisdom and discernment of men happened when Jesus Christ came to show us how foolish we were, how disobedient we actually are compared to Christ. He is the very wisdom of God. He is the, the very power of God. So God will consume the wisdom and discernment of men. Why? Well, quite obviously, so that men will rest in the wisdom and power of God rather than their own wisdom and power. Right? Isn't that what you want anyway? All right, let's look at the last section here, verses 15 through 24. It says, Ah, you who hide from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and you say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, and the things made say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed of him who formed it? He has no understanding. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil will be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, they lay a snare to him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea they turn aside from him who is in the right. Therefore the Lord, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, nor more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. Those who murmur will accept instruction. Okay? The people think they're in control. They have more wisdom than God. Can a, a vessel that's made by a potter come to life and say, you don't know what you're doing. That's the ridiculous statement that's made. Or it says, the pot, that potter didn't make me. You might say, well, then where did you come from if a potter didn't make you? And you might say, well, right, okay, I guess I get that. You can't say that God is not your maker. That's just as absurd, even more absurd. cannot live your life with disregard for the God that made you. Verse 17, there begins to be some hope in this bleak picture of a people who are going to be burnt on an altar and devoured by God because they don't understand and they don't have wisdom or discernment. And their worship has been fake to God. They think by just putting up a front that God will be pleased. Well, he's not pleased. In fact, he says, I don't, I'm not pleased with any of your sacrifices, with any of your songs, with anything you're doing. 
I'm going to take you and put you on the altar and burn you up. Because everything you've been doing has, has actually made me more mad. In fact, that's what Romans 1 says. You store up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. But there is hope. Look at verse 18. In that day, the day when all these things were, are, are actually and finally fulfilled, in that day the deaf will hear the words of a book. Remember before the book was closed and no one could understand it, no one could read it? Well, now all of a sudden the people who once were deaf have the book open and they actually can understand it. That's miraculous. The deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And the meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind will rejoice or exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so it says the deaf hear, the blind see, the meek have joy, and the poor rejoice. Now, we remember Jesus talking about something like that, don't we? Luke 7, he answered them, Go tell John what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, the poor are rejoicing. So Jesus is finding fulfillment in the gospel itself. The ultimate fulfillment of this is the gospel itself. The day when the deaf will hear, quite obviously, you and I are the deaf ones, you and I are the blind ones. We were meek and poor, but in Christ, we hear and we see and we have joy and we rejoice. Those are the only two pictures we have of humanity, either blind and deaf and in darkness or those who can hear and those who can see and those who have a fresh joy in the Lord. There is no middle ground. Verse 20. The ruthless shall come to nothing. The scoffers will cease. All who watch to do evil will be cut off. In a word, they make a man out to be an offender, like a snare who one who reproves them at the gate. They, they condemn someone with an empty plea. All this is saying that there used to be a, a group of elders who would sit by the city gate, and people would come up to them, and they would say, hey, I got a problem with this guy over here, and I'll give you, you know, whatever their money was or trade, I'll give you this if you give me a favorable judgment over this guy. And then they say, okay, sounds good to me. And he says, okay, he did this to me. And he says, well, what's your proof? It doesn't matter. He did it anyway. With one word, you make someone out to be an offender. But then look inside to yourself. Who is the offender to God? It's you. You're the offender to God. That's what he's saying. Verses 22 through 24. So thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Here's the end of the story. Here's what God has to say when it's all said and done. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. Well, pause right there. Should these people be ashamed for the state that they're in, offering false worship to God? People who think they're smarter than the God who made them. In fact, they look at God and say, ah, God didn't make me. You think they need to be ashamed of who they are? But then it says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. There's hope. No more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. Are they sanctifying his name now? That is, are they ascribing to the Lord the true holiness of who he is right now? Is that what they're doing? They're not doing that at all. But one day they will. One day these children will, and they will not be ashamed. And look at verse 24. 
Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. Those who murmur will accept instruction. Thank goodness. Because I would run away from the Lord forever. Because I don't understand. And yeah, I murmur. And how much more before Christ redeemed me? God's wondrous act, what is that? He says, I'm going to do wonder upon wonder. What is that exactly? God's wondrous acts produce a people that are humbled and they stand in awe of him. Now, why that's wondrous, now we think of wonderful as an, oh, that's, that's wonderful. We think beautiful or that's, that's good. That's, oh, that's wonderful. What this means is actually invoking wonder. How is that possible? That's wonderful. That's, that's a real sense of the word wonderful. It's wondrous. How can that be? That the Lord would take such a disobedient people who don't understand, who actually deny the fact that he is the one that made them, and he would open their minds to understand the very ones who murmur against him, he says they will murmur no more and they will sanctify my name. Now that is something wondrous, isn't it? How could God do that to me? Did I deserve that? No. I deserve to be placed on the altar and burned up. That's what I deserve. But God in his mercy has made another way. Thank goodness. We're going to finish here. I just want to reference two things. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. We remember what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so obey now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you remember that here in verse 23, it says, He will see and the children will be the work of my hands. How is it that you are able to hear and see and understand the word of God and be used by God and to put away sin and to put on Christ? How is that possible? How do you know what the will of God is? How do you choose the will of God rather than the will of your flesh? Not by your own energy, not by your own efforts, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. Likewise, we see Ephesians 1, Marie, verse 8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, so let's just look at what this, this chapter is telling us. The people will be visited by the Lord in a flame of consuming fire. Not good. I don't want that. The people will be consumed because they do not understand and their worship is false. That ought to give us a hint that I ought to be afraid of this because my worship is often false and my understanding is not what it should be. But the good news is in the second half where it says the people will not all be consumed because God has a plan for their salvation, because God is working in them for his good pleasure. We're going to end with Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and I'd like for you to turn there. I'm going to read this, make some application to it, and we'll be finished. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So then, listen to this language. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So our life is to be a type of sacrifice, but here's the good news. The ultimate sacrifice has been paid. Life has been taken for your life. God will not demand you as a sacrifice for your sins because Jesus was the sacrifice for your sins. But we ought to live a life of sacrificial worship to him, knowing that we should have been the sacrifice laid on the altar. So it says, by the mercies of God, Present your body as a living sacrifice, not one that's dead laying on an altar. Because something that's dead laying on an altar can't be transformed and renewed. Right? But you can be transformed and renewed. So we live each day as a sacrifice to God. Being transformed by the mercy of God. He has delivered you from wrath and fire from heaven. He has not consumed you. He consumed Christ for you. And for that, we praise him.